Well, Jesus is a controversial figure. Some people devote their lives to him. Others think that the religion he founded has been one of the most harmful movements in world history. And many people sit somewhere in the middle. In fact, uh, even here tonight, and this is actually a wonderful thing about Uni Church, even here tonight there'll be a, a whole range of different opinions that uh, people here have about Jesus. So tonight, as we continue in our series in Luke's Gospel, here in Luke 4, well, here we see some pretty strong reactions to Jesus. You probably noticed as it was read out. And so as we look at how they react to Jesus, my hope tonight is that it'll help each one of us, no matter where we sit, no matter where we are on that spectrum, what our thoughts are of Jesus, that'll help each one of us move that little bit closer uh, to, to Jesus. We did have a fairly long reading. Uh, we're going to be focusing most of our attention on the first part, Luke 4, verses 14 to 30. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, uh, have a look with me from verse 14. It says, Uh, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread over the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Now, notice verse 14 says that Jesus returned to Galilee. And sometimes it's hard reading the Bible, these names, it's hard to know, make heads or tails of which places mean what. Um, So it's helpful to have a bit of a map, maybe to get a sense of things. Uh, This is Israel back in the day of Jesus. So in the south, you've got Judea, and that's where the capital city of Jerusalem is, uh, with Bethlehem not too far away. Then in the central region to the west of the Jordan River, you've got Samaria. uh, And as you you might know, the Jews and the Samaritans had a bit of bad blood going on. But then in the north, you've got Galilee. Uh, So Jews mainly lived in Judea in the south and Galilee in the north, uh, with Samaritans sandwiched in between. And they're about three days' walk from each other. Now, in Galilee, this northern region, you've got uh, small towns like Capernaum, which we had mentioned uh, in our reading, a fishing village uh, on the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus spent a lot of time, and the even smaller, tiny village of Nazareth that you can barely see in there, which is where Jesus grew up. Now, we're about to see some action unfold in Nazareth, but as we do, it's good to keep in mind that uh, if you've been here with us the last couple of Sundays, uh, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. That's the Jordan River um, running down here. So he's baptized somewhere in there. Then in Luke 4, he was uh, led by the Spirit into the wilderness, the desert, for 40 days to be tempted. And now in today's passage, he's returning to Galilee and his public ministry is getting underway. So really, this is the start, the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. This is Jesus kicking things off. And so how's it going to start? What's going to happen? Well, let's see how things go. Have a look in your Bibles with me at Luke 4 and verse 16. It says, Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Notice that, his hometown. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Okay, so here we see Jesus doing what he did every Saturday growing up. He's in the synagogue, uh, which is kind of like the Jewish equivalent of church, where they'd gather each week, sing some songs, in their case, psalms, uh, and hear from God's word, just like we do. But this week, they had a special guest speaker, Jesus himself. Pretty hard to beat that. Uh, And the scroll of Isaiah is handed to him, and Jesus looks, he thumbs through it for one place in particular. Jesus knows where he's going. We read on, 
unrolling it, it used to be in a big scroll like this, unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. That's what you did in a synagogue. You would sit down to preach instead of standing. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, if you stop and think about it, what Jesus is doing here is crazy. They're doing a similar thing to what we've done in church, reading through Isaiah. In fact, the first half of this year, we worked through Isaiah and we read from this exact passage that Jesus is quoting from, which is Isaiah chapter 61. But Jesus takes this 700-year-old by his day, it's 2,700-year-old now, he takes this 700-year-old scroll with this 700-year-old prophecy and he says, yes, you see this person that God promised through Isaiah? That's me, guys. I'm it. I mean, it's crazy, the the boldness and the audacity to say, here and now, today, this scripture is fulfilled in me. He's not beating around the bush, is he? So this is quite remarkable. But, you know, Isaiah 61 was well known in Jesus' day, but it's not as familiar to us. And so it's not as clear to us the full implications of what Jesus is actually saying. So it's worth asking, what does Isaiah 61 mean, and what does it mean that Jesus applies it to himself? Uh, This is important to ask, because as I mentioned, this is the start of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is telling us what he's on about. Uh, And this passage is, it can sometimes be a source of confusion as people turn to, to figure out what Jesus is on about. Uh, This is the place that uh, some people go to to say that what Jesus is really on about is uh, social programs, destroying oppressive systems and restructuring society. And to be fair, you can kind of see how they might think that. Like Jesus says, he's proclaiming what? Good news to the poor. Freedom for prisoners. To set the oppressed free is come to do away with oppression. But here's the thing, it's always important to read the Bible in context, to look at it and not just think immediately, jump off the page, what does it mean to me based on what I think, but actually figure out what it originally meant to them. And so when you look at Isaiah 61 in context, it's not about social programs or restructuring society. Uh, If you're with us earlier this year, we saw that Isaiah was written to God's people who were in exile under the oppressive Babylonian empire. God's people had sinned and been defeated by their enemies and taken off into exile, which means that they were being oppressed. They were in captivity. They were prisoners. They were impoverished. They were poor. They'd had their wealth and prosperity and comfort and possessions, everything taken away from them. And in Isaiah 42, verse 18, God even described their spiritual rebellion as blindness. They'd stopped seeing God for who he really is. And so it's in that context, as they languish in exile, God sent a message through Isaiah promising to send someone to save them, to restore them, to rescue them from their enemies. 
And that is the good news that God sent to these poor, blind, oppressed prisoners in exile. Not social programs, but salvation. Deliverance from their enemies through God's chosen servant, he would send to save them. That's what God's people were waiting for. Now, let's be clear. Jesus is deeply concerned for the poor. And as followers of Jesus, we should be too. We've seen in recent weeks that love of God should express itself in love of neighbor, especially the most vulnerable. And that is so important. But it's also important that we don't confuse that with Jesus' main mission. A care for the poor is a part of our response to the gospel, but it's not the gospel itself. The good news that Jesus is proclaiming is salvation, that through his death and resurrection, Jesus saves all those who trust in him, not just salvation from the Babylonians or the Romans who are oppressing God's people in Jesus' day, but salvation from our far greater enemies of sin and death. It's similar to what you uh, see if you go down to Luke 4, chapter 43, at the end of our reading. Uh, If we pick up from verse 42, it says, At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim what? The good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. So that whole message of Isaiah 61 to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners and so on, Jesus sums that all up as what? To proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the time that, that Israel was waiting for when God sends his king to save his people. And Jesus is saying, I'm him. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is the spirit-anointed Messiah King, the suffering servant who's come to save his people. So that's Jesus explaining his mission. But how do people respond to this? Let's help to break it up because there's an initial response and then an ultimate response. Let's have a look at their initial response. How do people respond when they hear Jesus explaining this? Well, have a look at, with your, in your Bibles with me at Luke 4 verse 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Now, what we see here is a two-part reaction. The first part seems pretty positive, right? All spoke well of him. They were amazed at his gracious words. You know, they're like, this guy's an impressive speaker. He speaks well. He speaks with authority. We saw that a lot in the second half of the passage. They're amazed, The first part seems positive, but then look at that second part. Isn't this Joseph's son? Because remember, this is happening in Nazareth, the small village where Jesus grew up. This is hometown boy Jesus, the kid of that carpenter Joseph who we all know so well. They're saying, Jesus, Jesus has grown up here. He's one of us. He's been in our synagogue every Saturday. He's nothing special. I mean, sure, he's a good kid. Now that I think about it, I can't. I can't uh, you know, remember him ever misbehaving or anything like that. But come on, Jesus, the one promised by Isaiah 700 years ago? No way. So get this, they're amazed at Jesus, 
but they don't believe the big claims that he's making about himself. They're so familiar with Jesus that they just can't imagine him being who he claims to be. Familiarity breeds contempt. So that's their initial response, amazed but refusing to believe that he really is who he says he is. But then Jesus pushes deeper. Jesus exposes their hearts. He doesn't say, well, hey, look, even though they don't fully believe, at least they're kind of positive, like I'll take what I can get. Beggars can't be choosers. No. As we saw back in Luke 2, verses 34 to 35, part of Jesus' mission was to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel to be a sign that would be spoken against, opposed, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Jesus exposes the spiritual condition of people by the way they respond to him. This is true back then, and it's, today, it's true today as well. The way people react to Jesus exposes what's really going on in their hearts. So in Luke 4, Jesus presses deeper to show what's really going on in there. Have a look in your Bibles at verse 23. Jesus said to them, Surely you'll quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you'll tell me, Do hear the kind of miracles in your hometown what we heard you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you there were many widows in Israel, God's people, in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon, outside the promised land, outside of God's people. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and yet none of them, not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. Again, someone from outside of God's people. So Jesus says here, first he tells, he knows what's going on in their hearts. He knows that they really want him to give a miracle to prove it. Uh, miracles that they heard he'd done in Capernaum. But then in verse 24, he says, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Familiarity breeds contempt. And to back that up, he points to the example of two Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah was a prophet sent by God, but he was rejected by God's people. God's people back then were led by a wicked king, Ahab, and they rejected Elijah. So what did God do? He sent Elijah outside of Israel to others. Elijah went to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. That's non-Israelite territory. What happened? God's people rejected God's prophet And so God's prophet went elsewhere, and it was other people who were blessed instead. So what's Jesus saying to the people in Nazareth? He's saying, if you reject me, you are just like the sinful Israelites who rejected Elijah. And he's saying to them, if you reject me, then I'll go to others instead. And when he says this, they are furious. Jesus has exposed their hearts and what they're really thinking. And so while their initial response is at least mixed, their ultimate response is decidedly negative. 
Have a look in your Bibles at, at verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Now, the geography of Nazareth is such that there are quite a few rocky hills and cliffs around, many of them four stories high or more, where you could easily throw someone to their death. And that's what the crowd tries to do. They're so incensed at how Jesus has exposed their hearts, exposed their rebellion against God. They are furious enough to kill him. But of course, they're not able to. He walked right through the crowd and went on his way. That's quite cryptic, isn't it? We're not told exactly how Jesus was able to do this. Uh, You can just imagine uh, Luke talking to one of the eyewitnesses uh, who saw this happen and going, so what happened? Tell me about it. And they're like, yeah, we were were taking him up to the brow of the cliff to throw him down. And then then he he was just gone. And Luke's like, what? How'd that happen? And it's, I don't know. It's mysterious. It's kind of similar to what we see in John 7, 30, where it says, at this they tried to seize Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus' hour would eventually come. He would eventually be killed by those who hated him when he was crucified and died on a cross. But that time had not yet come. But we shouldn't let it escape our notice that such deadly opposition to Jesus is being foreshadowed even here in Luke 4 at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. So their initial response was amazement. But as Jesus pressed deeper... He exposed what was really going in their hearts. And their ultimate response was an outright rejection of Jesus. Now, that's quite a striking start to Jesus' public ministry, isn't it? And as we look at how people respond to Jesus back then, uh, there are three warnings for us here today. Three warnings for us as we today think about Jesus and how we respond to him. And the first warning is... Familiarity breeds contempt. Why is it that the people in Nazareth rejected Jesus? They were too familiar with him. Isn't this Joseph's son? We know this guy. He can't be that special. Familiarity breeds contempt, or at the very least, complacency. And that danger is alive and well today. Let's think about two different examples of how it could manifest itself. Maybe you're here tonight and you've had some kind of Christian upbringing or went to a Christian school. You know, uh, for the last four years, uh, before coming to Uni Church, when I worked at UWA, I met a lot of students who had gone to Christian schools, and because of that, they felt like they kind of knew Jesus. Yep, Christianity, been there, done that. Boring, not for me. But as we chatted further, uh, this happened time and time again, it happened every single time, it became clear that they hadn't really engaged the real Jesus been to an Anglican school or a Catholic school, whatever else it might be. They'd sat through moralistic chapel services and classes on how to be a nice person, but they hadn't actually engaged with the Jesus that we find in the Gospels. Christian schools will almost never give you that. And so, like a non-mRNA vaccine, you know, the old school kind, they had just enough of the dead virus, they had just enough of dead Christianity to inoculate them against the real, vital, living thing. 
So if you're here tonight and you've been to a Christian school or had some kind of Christian upbringing, please be careful not to write Jesus off before you've even investigated him for yourself. Be mindful of how familiarity breeds contempt. You know, often in these conversations, people would share how they don't think they could be a Christian because they're more about evidence and seeing for yourself uh, rather than blind faith like Christians. And often ask them, so, oh, that's so interesting. I think it's great that you care about the evidence. So have you investigated the evidence for Jesus for yourself? Oh, no. So, so often people just believe based on blind faith the vague things that they've absorbed about Jesus without actually looking for themselves. So so that's one scenario where it might come up. Familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, But here's a second example of where it might come up. Maybe you're here tonight and you are a Christian and even a very active Christian. But it's still helpful for you to heed the same warning. Have you become so familiar with Jesus through all the Christian teaching that you absorb week in and week out without really engaging with him deeply for yourself? Has familiarity bred complacency in your life? You know, if someone's exploring Christianity for the first time, we say the best thing they can do is read the gospel for themselves, rest with Jesus firsthand. And, but, you know, that's true for Christians as well. I wonder, have you read through the four Gospels for yourself as an adult? Have you done that ever? Have you done it recently? With an active mind and an open heart to to really know Jesus and walk with Him every day. Now, I think it's a great habit for even every year as a Christian, if you're going to have Jesus at the center of your life, go through all the Gospels every year. Keep going, keep soaking. You'll keep finding new depths and insights into Jesus' person and character that you haven't seen before. Don't fall for the trap, even if you're a Christian. Don't fall for the trap of, yeah, I'm familiar with Jesus. What if you said to yourself, over the next few months, you know what? I'm going to work my way through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'm going to mark it up, and I'm going to ask questions, and I'm going to drill my hub leader with them, and I'm going to make it my mission to really get to know this Jesus who I say is at the center of my life. Wouldn't that be awesome? So that's the first warning from this passage. Familiarity breeds contempt. The second is that it's not enough to be impressed. Do you remember back in verse 22, the people's initial response to Jesus is that they spoke well of him. They were even amazed. But their reaction shows that it's possible to be impressed with Jesus without actually believing the claims that he makes about himself. And I've got to say, this is a common trap to fall into. I've uh, met a lot of people who aren't following Jesus, and yet they're very impressed at Jesus' moral teaching and example. They're very impressed at his remarkable influence on Judeo-Christian heritage and human rights and all those wonderful things, and the care care for the poor and justice and all these things we've inherited from Jesus. But, oh, the claims that he makes about himself? Oh, no, I don't think too much about those. They don't take seriously his claims to be the Son of God, prophesied by Isaiah. But here's the thing, that's just not the real Jesus. If Jesus was a good moral teacher, no one in Nazareth would have been offended at him. They wouldn't have wanted to kill him. 
You see, Jesus didn't just teach morality. He made exclusive truth claims about himself. Luke 4, 21, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus says that he is the center point of history, the son of God. Those are huge claims, not just moral teachings. As C.S. Lewis famously writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said, including in Luke 4, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. And that's certainly true of the Jesus that we meet here in Luke 4, isn't it? So that's the second warning from this passage. It's not enough to be impressed with Jesus. We have to take seriously his claims about himself. Familiarity with Jesus is not the same as faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus will save you. Familiarity with Jesus will not. Now the third warning from this passage is that if we reject Jesus... He might just give us what we want. Now, this is a scary thought, but it's important for us to confront. In Luke 4, Jesus is rejected, and he gives them what they want. Now, Nazareth is where Jesus grew up. It's where he started his ministry. But after they reject him in Luke 4, we have no record in any of the Gospels of Jesus ever returning to Nazareth again. In fact, Matthew 4.13 says, Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Jesus left and he didn't go back. Jesus will not stay long where he is not welcome. Just like Elijah, if they didn't want him, he'd go somewhere else. He gave them what they wanted. And it's a scary thought the same thing could happen to some of us who are here tonight. You might even be here tonight thinking, I am not coming back again. I want nothing to do with this Jesus guy. But please don't let that be you. Jesus' heart, Jesus' desire is that you would be saved. In fact, that's the very reason he left Nazareth, not simply to judge them, but to to save others. You know, right after Matthew 4 records Jesus moving to Capernaum, it says that he did this to fulfill what was said to the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people in living in darkness, have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. 
You see, Jesus is a great life-giving light. And when the people in one place rejected that light, he went to give that light to others. Because Jesus' desire is that all would know him and be saved. Now, of course, for those living in darkness, light is scary. Light exposes us. Light reveals parts of us that we don't want revealed. It reveals the the selfishness and sin and pride in our hearts. And if you're anything like me, that is not a comfortable thing. But for those who receive him, Jesus not only exposes our hearts, but cleans them. For those who trust in him, Jesus not only reveals our sin, but forgives it. Jesus brings good news to the poor in spirit, those who, are, those who feel their need for a saviour, those who know they are messed up, people like me who know that they don't have their lives all together, people that recognise their need for a saviour, to those people Jesus brings good news and he gives life to those living in the shadow of death. How can you avail yourself of that life? Familiarity with Jesus will not do it. Faith in Jesus, which simply means trusting in Him, relying upon Him, coming to Him and saying, Jesus, I need you. If you are willing to do that, then you will experience for yourself the light of life that is found in Jesus. So yes, Jesus is a controversial figure. But if you're willing to trust him for who he says he is, I guarantee he will change your life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you as the God of light and the God of life. Father, in your mercy, we thank you that you have sent Jesus uh, to expose the darkness of human hearts so that we might realize just how great our need is for you. Thank you that Jesus came to bring the good news of salvation, that through his death on the cross in our place, we can be forgiven, and through his rising from the dead three days later, we can have eternal life with you. Father, help us to see Jesus for who he really is. We pray that familiarity wouldn't breed contempt or complacency. For those of us here tonight who trust Jesus, help us to take him seriously and walk with him day by day and want to keep getting to know him better through your word, to know him firsthand and for ourselves, not just based on secondhand knowledge. And Father, for those of us here tonight who don't yet trust Jesus, please soften their hearts. Please, Father, may there be no one here tonight who is just impressed with Jesus, but rejects the claims he makes about himself. Help us all to trust in him and receive the light of life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.